What's really good, everybody? This is Nathan Alabach, and welcome to the podcast where we get into people's stories and go down a bunch of rabbit holes about what's really good in the world. Before I jump into today's guest, I want to make one quick statement about the show. So this is episode 16, and the most common thread I've been noticing thus far is that people seem to be feeling that as a society, we need to get better at having difficult conversations. It's become somewhat of a cliche to say at this point, but the times we're in are increasingly so polarizing and tribal, and trying to understand the other is only getting harder. So... With that said, I'm really hoping to continue down this path in the coming episodes, and I'll do my best not to become just another echo chamber or partisan hack that's not open to new ideas, within obvious, reasonable confines, of course. I really appreciate all of your support from the past two months of the show, and I'm looking forward to continually growing as a host and having on guests that inspire and educate and challenge each of us more on just topics that matter. So... Now, for today's episode, I had the honor of speaking with Shadi Hamid. Shadi is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor at The Atlantic. He's also the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, and the co-editor of Rethinking Political Islam. I was first introduced to his work when he was featured on Sam Harris's podcast, Waking Up, which is an episode you should definitely check out, along with a whole slew of other great talks and debate videos he's done that you can find on YouTube. Throughout our conversation, Shadi got a bit into his experience as a Muslim in America. We briefly commented on the intellectual dark web, which is especially relevant because he'll be speaking at a conference called A Day of Reflection in November, which features almost exclusively members from that groupthink. We also took a dive into the benefits and pitfalls of identity politics, uh, talked about racism, theocracy, Christianity, and some of the unique geopolitical complexities of Islam as a whole. Shadi is such an important voice in the field of communication right now around these topics. So much of his work is centered on creating common ground between opposing groups through education and just understanding the bigger picture when most media is bent on simplifying it to just black and white, which, like I was saying earlier, is so important nowadays. Anyway, I really learned a ton from this conversation, and I hope you can take something from it as well. Now let's get into what's really good. And we're live. Shaddy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'll have given a brief intro to who you are and what you do, but just to get us started, can you share an overview of how you got into your work around Islam and touch a bit on your personal faith and backstory? Oh, wow. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There are probably two major formative political events for me. The first was 9-11 and then the Iraq war. So 9-11, I was just a freshman in undergrad. And I'm just two weeks into, you know, into being away from home for the first time in my life and trying to figure out what I believe and what I think. 9-11 happens. And in some sense, it's a double tragedy, first as an American, obviously, but also as a Muslim in the sense that 
Here you have people who claim to be Muslim doing things as they see it in the name of Islam, and that's, that's a kind of difficult thing to make sense of. So that actually politicized me and you know, set me along a course where I wanted to understand why is the relationship between the U.S. and the broader Middle East so messed up and how has it how has it come to this and then the rock war happened shortly thereafter so there's obviously a lot of um instability and political violence broadly speaking in in the middle east and the broader muslim world and one of the conclusions i came to was that authoritarianism was part of the problem but then i was wondering the U.S. has done a better job of supporting democracy in Latin America after a long time where we weren't doing that and supporting coups and things like that. In the 1980s, you start to see a shift in Latin America and other regions, but we don't see that shift in the Middle East, and we continue to support dictatorships. So the answer to that question was, hey, we're afraid of who might come to power through free and fair elections. Who are these people who are afraid of? Islamist parties. And I wanted to learn more about who and what these Islamist parties were. So I had a Fulbright Fellowship in Jordan in 2004, 2005, and I basically spent the academic year hanging out with the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood. Wow. That's sort of how it started. (laughs) That's crazy. Was that your first time over there? Like in that area, I'd been I'd, I'd been in Egypt and the UAE before, but it was my first time living really abroad as an adult, and my first time living in Jordan. Wow! So I'm interested to know: Were your parents first uh, generation immigrants to America? Yeah. So my dad came in the 70s, and my mom came in 1980 from Egypt. So what was it like growing up for you with your faith background? I grew up in an Arab-American Muslim community, if you want to call it that, in, um, outside of Philadelphia and Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. And I mean, growing up, there was a mosque that we would go to um, every now and then, not too far away. And there were, I would say it was mostly an Egyptian community rather than a Muslim community more broadly. My parents just kind of naturally associated more with, um, with other Egyptians. So I grew up with Islam being part of the milieu. I mean, I I, um, I went to Sunday school. Muslims do have Sunday school <laughs> as well. I, you know, and one thing I really appreciated, and I think I appreciated more, is that my parents' philosophy was, hey, you know, we might come from a more traditional, culturally conservative background in Egypt, and they were a little bit confused about things like going to dances in high school. Hmm. And that wasn't something they really had any experience with. But their approach was to basically tell me, like, Shadi, you know, we have concerns about some of these things. And we don't think going to dances is is the right thing. But we're going to leave it up to you to make your own decision. We've done our part as parents to tell you what we think. But we want to give you some freedom to come to your own conclusions. And I don't know how much that played a role in how I approached various issues. But I think that was that was an important thing that my parents gave me, even though they themselves were, uh, you know, on the more culturally or socially conservative side. Yeah. 
That's super interesting. I mean, that sounds, it sounds like they're really caring and almost, were they more moderate, would you say? <laughs> like, what's interesting for me, like, I grew up right down the street from you. So, I mean, I grew up in, like, the King of Prussia, Glansdale area of Pennsylvania. Oh, I, so I we, thought you were literally going to say that you were down the street from me, and I didn't actually read no. <laughs> We We were actually on the same street. <laughs> But, I mean, most of the people, like, okay, so, like, the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, there's not a lot of, once you get into the suburbs, there's a lot of segregation. So, I think for a lot of people, where I grew up, at least, in sort of the general suburban, whatever, America, a lot of the understanding of American Muslims comes through some sort of lens that they get from mainstream media. So, like, what was it like for you growing up with parents in the faith and that sort of community? Was the broader sense more people like your parents who are just basically like, we love you and this is our experience and, you know, we want to accept and guide you through whatever you want to do growing up? Or what was that like for you? Yeah, so I actually think that some of our Egyptian family friends tended to think that our family was a little bit more liberal, but I'm, I'm sure if you talk to like a really super liberal, not really practicing family, they would think that my parents were conservative. <laughs> That's how it is, right. <laughs> how you look at it. But so there's a couple things. Well, first of all, before 9-11, there wasn't much sense of Islam. People knew People had heard of Muslims and they were vaguely aware that there are Muslims in different parts of the world. But that was before most Americans are really paying close attention to these issues. And even the association with terrorism hadn't really developed much. So I didn't really have, for example, a middle school or high school. And I went to public school um, in the sort of suburb outside of Philadelphia. I didn't really have much experience with racism per se. There's one thing that does stand out to me, and there was this guy. And actually, oddly enough, I remember I remember his name and sort of even remember what he looks like. Oh, wow! But, but he, I'm sure he's like a really cool guy now, and he has a family and all that. But he used to kind of just call me a terrorist every now and then. <laughs> just casually? <laughs> casually. And it wasn't even something that I really took a lot of offense to. And he wasn't, a, he was he was maybe slightly bullying, but he wasn't that mean. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he would even be casual and friendly about it. Like, hey, terrorist. But at the time, it didn't really hit me in any profound way because Terrorism wasn't really part of the public debate, and it bothered me, but it, that was just such a different time, and it's almost hard to describe to people who don't remember what it was like before 9-11, and I'm just thinking about that, too, because I was actually just giving a talk to um, a younger group of uh, you know interns and students the other day, and I was talking about 9-11, and I, and I realized as I was talking to them that 9-11 doesn't mean, it means something com completely different for them. In some sense, it doesn't even mean that much because they were too young to remember what it felt like. So I think that that captures maybe some of some of that demarcation. You know, when it comes to modern and, and moderate and, and using those terms to describe people on a faith spectrum, I've always been, I've become more and more uncomfortable with the word moderate, even though I think 
generally people would see me in whatever the moderate space might be. And I, re- and I even remember post 9-11 going to receptions or dinner parties and people would meet me and they'd be like, oh, you seem so moderate. Wait, <laughs> why? You know? And they were trying to be nice and they thought they were being tolerant to say, oh, you're Muslim, but you seem so reasonable. And of course, it was very patronizing and right. very problematic. And once we start talking about moderates, then we're immediately contrasting the good Muslims to the supposedly bad Muslims. Right. All these things are, are really you know, subjective. What does it mean to be good or bad in different contexts? So I've, I've really tried to move away from that rhetoric myself in terms of how I, how I do my own analysis how I describe myself at this point in my life, I, I see I, I consider myself a liberal Muslim, and that probably means that's a whole can of worms itself. Uh, but I try to separate between my own personal biases or my own personal views about religion and how I analyze the Middle East and how I analyze Islamist parties. And I've been very adamant about that. I, I try not to take a liberal lens and put it on people who grew up and lived under a very different context. I mean, if you were born raised in Egypt or Pakistan in a very conservative context, it wouldn't really make much sense for me as an American Muslim to come in and say, why aren't you guys more liberal? Why aren't you right. more tolerant? I really do think the reason that I'm liberal and how I view religion and how I just view things more generally is because I'm a product of American culture. And I, and I think that if you took my same genetic makeup, but I was born and raised somewhere else, I probably would be completely different. So I've, I've come to appreciate more the contingency of who I am, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think, too, along with what you were saying about how the term moderate has become this almost insult in a way, I think a lot of people, they associate moderate with the same word as centrist or someone who isn't very serious or doesn't have convictions or is maybe just somewhere in the middle, kind of like wishy-washy and lukewarm on whatever it is. And that's definitely not at all, I guess, how I perceive the word, but that's sort of what it's becoming more in the public space, you know, when you define yourself, because now, especially nowadays with political polarization, people want to know right away where you stand on every issue and like how far down whatever line you are. But I I really like that perspective that you gave there. So I I hadn't actually thought of it, but I've also become maybe not more uncomfortable with the word centrist, but more uncomfortable with the concept of centrism. Hmm. I think I actually just, um, I don't know exactly when this will come out, but I'll, I, I did a Twitter thread the other day where I sort of um, went off on centrism. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be mean to him. I don't know him personally, so, but I guess I've been kind of mean to him on Twitter every now and then. But, you know, I think what triggered this is jo- Jonathan Shape. Mm-hmm. He wrote this long piece in... New York Magazine that hypothesized about Trump basically being a Russian stooge or agent. And the whole the whole premise of the piece was, hey, none of this might be true. But what if it was true? What if Trump's trip to Russia in like 1987? Who knows what happened there? And it's sort of like 
anyway, I think that more and more people who I would associate with political centrism in the U.S. today are the ones who I've become most uncomfortable with in terms of their rhetoric, their political outlook. Not everyone, but this kind of lack of ideological conviction, the lack of a yeah. real core vision. And when you lack that core vision for what you want your country to be, I think it's very easy to fall back on partisanship, on this kind of reflexive anti-Trumpism that, quite frankly, is boring. You know, most people, like at least in, in our circles in debating these issues, either don't like Trump or have major objections to Trump in one way or the other. So I just find it kind of a little bit uninteresting and easy. And I just don't think that's really the most important job for analysts or writers now to just be to just outbid each other on anti-Trumpism. And I worry that more and more centrist writers, they fall back on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that might be one of the biggest criticisms of this whole intellectual dark web movement as a whole is because you have a lot of people within the movement who when you actually parse out their beliefs you do have some variation like there's obvious variations of belief between someone like a Sam Harris and a Majid Nawaz but when you actually look at the content that they're putting out and what they all choose to focus on it's all this sort of similar you know we're trying to be anti-tribal we're trying to be anti-partisan and we're trying to critique the left as a vague term. And they, they focus more on, I guess, what they're against than what they're for. And, that's, and it's, it puts it in a really weird space because then it garners this whole new tribal identity between them where you have this entire group of people who would, I think a lot of them would, honestly, self-title themselves uh, moderates or centrists. You know, it's people yeah. who... They, they have beliefs sort of across the spectrum, so they can't really form an identity when it comes to policy issues one way or the other. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, we live in a binary system, so you're either going to vote left or you're going to vote right. And the way these people have sort of created a new market share on YouTube and podcasts and Twitter and a lot of these new mediums is that they've sort of guised a lot of their ideology in you know, we are sort of the alternative to the binary system. But in, in doing that, they've created a new binary, which is now just we are all critical of Islam. We are all critical of social justice warriors. And in their rhetoric, they're act they actually kind of let Trump slide a lot. You know, a lot of them do, at least. You know, you have ones like Jonathan Haidt or Sam Harris who are a little bit more vocal about that. But even in that, they're very, a lot of them are very careful in how they word their rhetoric to not completely isolate their um, sort of classical liberal libertarian fan bases who consider themselves a little closer to the center than the right. But it's this really weird, <laughs> it's a weird space for uh, these sort of new, this new set of public figures to be in? Like, how do you, when you look inward at all of them, like, how do you see yourself fitting into that bigger picture of these new figures in the intellectual dark web? So, I guess, Nathan, this is where you get me in trouble. We were <laughs> to the, the intellectual dark web. <laughs> so, you know, I think you're exactly right that, first of all, I don't buy that anyone can be anti-tribal. I think we are tribal by nature. Honest, and I've been, you know, I honestly have a tribe. My tribe um, is the Democratic Party. 
I don't, I don't like the, I don't like the Democratic Party that much. I think the leadership has been um, pretty disappointing and behind the times and, and all that. But ultimately, I'm going to vote for candidates who I know at the end of the day are going to have my back. I don't mean I, I, I'm an opponent of, of identity politics, but I'm also someone who realizes that identity matters. I'm a Muslim American, right? Yeah. So I, uh, even if you have a, re- a Republican candidate somewhere who, let's say hypothetically, agrees with me on a bunch of different things in domestic and foreign policy, I probably wouldn't vote for that person because they're part of a larger party that they're ultimately somewhat beholden to that is fundamentally anti-Muslim at this point in time. And one thing that I do appreciate about Democrats is they might have a number of unpersuasive or problematic ideas on X, Y, or Z issues, but they do, they are the ones who stand up for Muslim Americans in this kind of anti-Muslim environment. And and I'm someone who believes that we, most of us don't vote on policy. We vote on who we, on the so-called who we are questions. Mm. And think about it, in in the 2016 election, do you know anyone who looked at Hillary Clinton's endlessly detailed policy prescriptions on her website and were like, oh, I really like what Hillary is talking about on insurance markets, health insurance (laughs) markets. So you know what? I was going to vote for Donald Trump, but that policy detail was, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but that's not the way that most of us are voting now. Um, We're voting on the fundamentals, on who we are, who, what we think America is, what we think America should become. And these are things that go well beyond policy. And at some level, we have to put in our lot with one tribe or another, even if we're instinct, instinctively uncomfortable with tribalism as a political idea, right? So if someone says they're anti-tribal, that kind of means that they're tribal just in another way. And I think some people have brought that up in regards to the intellectual dark web folks that they've created their own sort of tribe, right? Yeah, it's it's a lot of, uh, yeah, it is odd how they harp on certain terminology, like they use words like echo chamber all the time, but it's sort of, <laughs> it's, it seems that they've created their own echo chamber. I mean, specifically with that event Dave Rubin's hosting that you're um, speaking on, that day of reflection event coming up. I mean, when you look at the the list of speakers on there, you really are the only, one of the only, if not the only black sheep you know, on that list of people where when you look at the sort of rhetoric that they espouse, you know, it is really, really similar. And again, even though when you actually parse out the individual beliefs, it's almost like I, I like to um, paint the picture like if you're gathering around a fire as a tribe, the fire that they're gathering around is all this anti-Islam, or at least anti-Islamist, anti feminism, anti-social justice warriors, and they have these sort of political correctness and all that. They have these talking points, but that's super interesting, man. I really think that the way we sort of go about these larger topics of something like you brought up identity politics, and I think that 
people are looking at these issues through the lenses of mainstream media way too often. And it's so easy to get behind uh, one individual or a group of individuals that we really relate to. Like you mentioned, you know, that people didn't really vote on policy. It's more like a gut thing. And if, if my gut is sort of like if my personal story and my gut really relates to someone like a Jordan Peterson, I'm going to follow his broader rhetoric. You know, I'm not just going to follow his advice on how to live better. Like I'm going to actually listen to what he has to say about really important larger topics. And I think that's kind of how these bigger topics like uh, identity politics get mixed up into this, because you had mentioned there is a Muslim experience. You know, there is a black experience. And I think a lot of times the critics of identity politics look at that like, well, we have to move past group identity. We have to move past this identifying as A, B, and C and just be individuals. And I think that there's a hundred percent merit to that. And I agree that we can't you know, we can't move society forward if we're all nitpicking every little piece of our identity apart before we can ever make any meaningful statement. But at the same time, you know, we can't refuse the stories, especially behind minority groups and why their identity politics exist, you know, specifically around when you look at, you know, the civil rights period. I often hear that this group of the intellectual dark web talks about how current left-leaning identity politics have arisen, um, or I should say current white identity politics have arisen from, in reaction to, left-leaning identity politics, whereas I almost see it the reverse. White America has existed long before any of these minority classes, and the, the original civil rights movement was a identity politic movement in reaction to white America. And now, you know, with the election of Donald Trump, you have that even escalated further. And you can point the finger all day to the other team. But at the end of the day, I think these minority groups need propping up in, especially in the public sphere right now, where the narrative is being controlled by mainstream aggregators and really not done proper service to at all. Yeah, so I think there's there's a lot to unpack there. So, um, well, one little aside I wanted to kind of put out there that your your audience might find amusing. I found out recently that there's this kind of subculture of young Muslim Jordan Peterson fans, and not just not, and not like secular Muslims, con- like religiously conservative Muslims. Wow. And, for anyone who's interested, I talked to uh, I was on this um, conservative Muslim podcast recently. It's called the Mad Mamluks, and we talked about Jordan Peterson at the end. And I was surprised because they were kind of like, "Hey, there are things that we're kind of into about Jordan Peterson." So there's a weird world where things overlap and all that. But on the on the issue of um, identity politics. I'm in a weird position because I am on the left. I consider myself on the left, but I'm uncomfortable with a lot of the identity politics rhetoric. And I'll just give you one example of how things have changed, at least as I see it. I don't actually remember thinking very consciously about whether or not I was the only Muslim or the only brown person in a room until fairly recently. Mm. Now I'm more conscious of it, basically because people are making me more conscious of it. I don't mean people who are being racist. I mean 
because there's so much discourse around representation and what proportion of Muslims or women or people of color are in a particular setting, I've just started to be more aware of these things, even though that's never the way I really saw my role. I mean, I, I've always seen myself more as a writer who happens to be Muslim yeah. rather than a Muslim writer. And quite frankly, I would much prefer to be the, the former than the latter. And But I don't know at what point that changes and I come to be identified as uh, a Muslim American writer. And that's how people come to primarily see me. That worries me a little bit. And I almost feel like that could be, in some sense, it's nice if people recognize Muslim Americans as a particular group, that we matter, we're part of mainstream American society and all that. But it also worries me that I may come to be seen primarily through something which isn't my most important, it's not the most important thing about who I am. Right. So there is a, there is a tension there. On the kind of um, post-Trump aspect of it, I think you're right that there's a version of white identity politics that has always been there in our country from the very beginning. That said, one thing that, that really made me uncomfortable during the campaign and still makes me uncomfortable now is the way some on the left, and I would say just Democrats more generally, talk about demographic changes in this country, this idea that oh, you know, just give it some time. There's not enough whites for Republicans to keep on winning. So even if we kind of suck as Democrats and can't convince people to vote for us on the merits, there's going to be too many people of color in 20 years for Republicans to win on really any any major national level. And that that I think is... It may be factually true. I mean, empirically, we do know that our country is going through demographic shifts. But I'm also trying to understand if I'm some like random white dude somewhere and um, I'm hearing that kind of rhetoric, I think it's understandable for people to get defensive because basically the message that's being sent to them is you've been a majority for the entirety of American history, but you are going to become a minority. Naturally, no one is going to be very Maybe maybe some people who are like super woke are going to. Yes, we want to be minorities. Right. Right. But let's be honest. It's human nature to not want to go from a majority to a minority. That's not to say that these sentiments are good. I'm not saying it's good to be uncomfortable with going from a majority to a minority. I'm just saying that as a description of human nature, we have to be realistic about humans, about how human beings react to certain stimuli, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing that you see, a similar discourse that you might see in Israel, where demographic shifts of what happens when Jews become a minority in in the area that would be called Israel, then the occupied ter- territories, Palestine, what, you know, things like that. And you see that also demographic fears in Europe over sharp increases in the relative share of the Muslim population. I mean, I'm very much an outspoken opponent of anti-Muslim bigotry, but I also can understand that people are uncomfortable with rapid demographic shifts in, say, Sweden or Norway or Denmark. Mm -hmm. We have to be attuned to those realities. Yeah, I think people have a very narrow view in America of just how difficult culture clash 
really can be across the world. Because, you know, we look at America, it's sort of this melting pot, and it's had that branding for a long time now where different cultures can come in and we all assimilate and become Americans as a whole. But that process, I think we're seeing more and more with the rise of identity politics and mainstream media, just how difficult it really is, you know, especially when you do have a vast majority of the population as one race. And then you have these more diverse races coming through and then the white population is slowly dwindling down, it creates this really strange space where I do notice the same tension that you're talking about. Like as a middle class privileged white person, I have to be able to acknowledge my place in all of that. But then at the same time, not let that terminology completely dissipate any opinion that I may have, because there is that sort of balancing act there where I think there's a lot of people who are white and they live in suburban and especially rural America. And most of them, most of them honestly probably have never met a Muslim. Like most of them, they, they're not in these inner city communities. And a lot of them come from towns that it's just white populations. And when they see all these conversations happen in mainstream media, whether they pick it up on Fox News or CNN or, or read it in the New York Times, they're getting this very, not scary for all of them, but this very polarizing picture where it has this very us-against-them feel. It's, it's the sort of minority groups together versus white America. And it leaves us in this really weird place because, you know, I'm totally comfortable joking about my race and you know keeping it light and, and being understanding of how I'm perceived to others. But at the same time, like you're saying, I even I have to be sensitive of how the white person in rural Kentucky or Alabama, wherever, is perceiving the rhetoric that I'm putting out there. Like I don't want it to be seen as okay, I'm just making fun of white people or I'm just dismissing this entire group. You know, I think that that's where this whole thing gets really, really sticky and uh but anyway we can go off about this forever i don't know did you have any closing thoughts on the identity politics <laughs> <laughs> well um i'll look i'll just say this and this is just i'm kind of just spitting stuff out there in a kind of free association way but um i i do think there is something really important obviously within limits about saying what you actually think and I think one of my broader concerns about our political debate or even like going on Twitter or being on a panel with someone and, I, you know, I hear these concerns a lot is a sense that you have to give a lot more thought to how you phrase certain things. It's harder to speak off the cuff um, because something you say, even if you're trying to be tolerant and understandable or whatever else even if it doesn't offend one side, it could be misinterpreted to offend the other side. Right. Almost like you're saying now that you're trying to be sensitive, but there's so many sensitivities now. And I think one thing, okay, let me be careful about how I put this. And even now I'm doing it. <laughs> I didn't, so that's actually where the fact that I am a person of color, that I'm Muslim and being Muslim, I guess I'm on we're one of the more disadvantaged groups, supposedly on the totem pole or hierarchy of disadvantagedness or whatever. <laughs> so that does give me a kind of liberty. It almost liberates me to speak more freely. 
And I have come to appreciate that more because honestly, also, also I, I kind of don't give a shit, but putting that aside, <laughs> look, no one's going to be able to really like lob the charge and have it stick that I'm anti-Muslim because my record speaks for itself. And it just doesn't make any sense to accuse me of something like that. So that does give me a certain kind of freedom that someone else may not have. Right. Yeah. And I do think there is something concerning that when can we really have interesting, thoughtful and freewheeling intellectual debates if people are concerned about crossing lines? And obviously there are some lines we shouldn't cross. So I'm against racism. And I'm here I'm talking about like the racism that we all agree is racism. So I'm not saying that we have to like open up things that should have been closed a long time ago. We don't have to debate things like um, the role of slavery in the Civil War. But there are things that we as generally reasonable Americans do not agree on, and we should be able to speak freely on those things that are still under contestation without closing debate. So I think we should be able to talk about abortion or Roe v. Wade instead of saying that everyone who supports um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh is going to bring us into the handmaid's tale in like a year. That should not be something that casts someone outside the fold of decentness. That if you, let's say there's a Catholic conservative who want, who does actually, out of a place of strong conviction, believe in overturning, that Roe v. Wade should be overturned. We might disagree with that person, but a lot of the rhetoric that I see now is that that person is anti-women. That person is a fundamentally bad person who is going to take women back to like the 1700s. Yeah. We should be able to have disagreements about things that are not settled. And abortion is something that reasonable people can disagree on because there are people who out of a place of faith and conviction do not believe in abortion. Yeah. This is where I think that there has to be a kind of deference to people as long as they're coming from a place of genuine conviction. And it's a reasonable interpretation of Catholicism to be anti-abortion or pro-life or whatever you want to call it. So that's sort of, I guess I'm just making a broader point about where we draw the lines of what is acceptable to debate. And we shouldn't be so quick to cast people out of polite society. Yeah, this is definitely something that I've noticed more on the left within the past few years specifically. I mean, you had mentioned previously about how there was sort of the pre-9-11, the post-9-11 perception of certain uh, words. Like you said that that one sort of bully had called you a terrorist casually, and the perception you had of that pre-9-11 and then this broader cultural perception of that post-9-11, those are very different things. And I think... That sort of ties in similarly to the rise of something like Black Lives Matter, where for a long time, at least when I was growing up, I didn't grow up with any big conversation on race. You know, we had all races in my public school, and I, didn't, I don't remember a time looking at a person of any color and thinking they are lesser in any way because of their color. That was never a thing. Like, we were sort of, I guess, intrinsically taught whether it was through the culture or through our upbringing, to be colorblind in a way. Like you had said, like you don't really want it to be, you don't want someone to be known as I am the 
black writer on this, or I am the Jewish teacher on this. You know, we were just kind of taught like, okay, we're all people. And then as soon as this sort of new wave of, it's almost like a new wave of civil rights started to hit with the Black Lives Matter a few years back, the conversation completely shifted to if you're someone who sees through a colorblind lens and says, I don't see color, now you're labeled a racist, which was a really difficult conversation socially for specifically conservatives to grasp because I grew up in a very conservative community and a lot of them are very loving people. And obviously everybody has different prejudices and biases. But overall, when I looked at a lot of the people in my community, I would never say that they're racist in any capacity. So for a lot of these people to come out saying in reaction to that sentiment, I don't see race, like I don't see color, and then to be called racist without any tug and pull debate to kind of work through, like, what do we mean by these terms? You know, what do we mean when we say colorblind? Like, does that mean you're dismissing the experience of this minority group necessarily, or does it mean that you're just trying to see through the lens of an individual? So I think a lot of topics like that that have risen within the past few years really have shined this poor light on the divide between specifically left and right and and so how we see the language that we use when it comes to you know identifying each other in these groups so exactly this is where i think it gets very hard to so i think there's a nuanced way to talk about what racism is and one way that i might i might tend to look at it is that um you know there are First of all, to state the obvious, I don't think all or even most Trump supporters are racist in in the kind of full in the full sense of the word. That said, you can be racist in effect, but not necessarily in intent. Yeah, I think that intent does matter because um, if you're just saying that people are racist because the policies they support effectively um, exacerbate systemic inequality based on race or color. Then pretty much then a Democrat or someone on the left could theoretically make the argument that every single Republican is effectively racist. Exactly. And then that diminishes the power of language. We're essentially making language useless. Um, and racism then is being deprived of its power as a conceptual, as, as a concept, really. So this is where, and, I, and I'm not actually, this is not a straw man, because I actually can think of a number of writers who basically make that argument. And that everyone who supports, uh, pretty much anyone who supports for Trump, knowing that he was racist, is in effect basically racist, because... They're allowing this to happen, and they don't consider racism to be bad enough to stop it. There's a lot of different variations of, the, of this argument. And I think we just got to be a little bit more, not just nuanced, but a little bit more clear about what we mean by our terms. Because as Americans now, there is a crisis of language where one of the reasons we can't actually debate each other is because we mean different things by pretty basic words. So if we're having a debate about race— the left and the right could theoretically sit together in a room, but they have different definitions of racism. Yeah. So far, can you really get another thing, uh, you know, is um, and uh, not to get too intellectual dark webby here, because <laughs> I don't know if is Glenn Lowry, a member of the intellectual dark web. Maybe he, he just did a podcast on it recently asking uh, Brett Weinstein if he thought he was. So <laughs> I think he's sort of on the fringes of it. 
know, that's right. Okay. But Glenn Lowry makes a really interesting point, and he, I, I remember he was talking about this with John McWhorter, who are both just really interesting debate partners because they're both very thoughtful, but they don't agree with each other on everything. So you actually are able to tease out some some differences. Yeah. But basically, you know, I will never. Um, Obviously, different minority groups experience different kinds of microaggressions, right? But not, but for example, not all black people experience the same degree of microaggressions. It depends on other factors, where they live, their context, so on and so forth. Not all Muslims experience the same sorts of microaggressions. But I think one point that Glenn Lowry, I think, was was making and has made in the past is to assume that microaggressions will destroy a person's spirit and they'll never be able to recover. And there's almost a kind of patronizing idea that even I hear as as a Muslim or as a, as a person of color myself, that, you know, if Muslims experience all these microaggressions in the media from Trump, from from people in different parts of the country, look, you know, we will experience those things. But that doesn't mean that I can't become who I want to be. Right. Like, there's no reason that microaggressions on their own are the end of what we can accomplish as individual Americans. And I worry that by emphasizing a lot of this microaggression rhetoric, we're almost creating the self-fulfilling prophecy of almost being like, you know what? You are oppressed. You are facing not just microaggressions, but macroaggressions 24-7. And you know what? You're never going to make it because this society is so damn racist. If we take the argument to its logical conclusion, that's where I worry we're ending up. And that doesn't serve anyone. Yeah, that's, in my view, that's the strongest critique of the left on all this. And I think that's, in a lot of ways, how you can explain the rise of the phenomena of someone like a Jordan Peterson, who is sort of this figure who is preaching anti-victimhood and is trying to create, you know, stand up for yourself, you know, clean your room. There's all these sort of almost <laughs> almost like life coachy bits he's putting out there. And obviously, I hate that I even have to caveat this, but obviously when you look deeper in his rhetoric, there are there's a lot of problematic pieces in there, whereas he does get to the point where he complains about complaining, and then it, it yeah. creates the same uh, vortex that he's preaching against. But I think the rhetoric still holds true, which is in reaction to a lot of this victim mentality that the left tends to prop up, because the left does tend to... Um, empathize at a more visceral level, I think, with the disenfranchised. So a lot of times the left is trying to prop up different minority groups. You know, how can we help in socioeconomic ways and personal ways? And a lot of times that can just take it can just take a step too far. And then insofar as that happens, you do create that victim mentality, which is what you see stations like Fox News or Breitbart constantly railing against which is just like oh the victims of the left and then they continue that scale of polarization where they push it they they sort of remove the intent and just create this exacerbated outrage type of reaction to the whole thing and i think we got to be honest going back to again what what i might think of as human nature human motivations it feels okay there are actually there's there's real victimhood like people who actually suffer in profound ways that we can't really identify with 
But then there's a kind of this broader sense where we all kind of want to mildly feel like we're persecuted because it makes us feel alive. Right. And I think that there's a war now of who can claim the bigger mantle of feeling. So, I mean, people make fun of um, white Christians for claiming the mantle of victimhood. Well, first of all, white Christians now are demographically, they're a minority in this country. So that's, that is a shift. And that's going to be interesting to watch about how how this specific group embraces or doesn't embrace their so-called minority status. But what I hear from, you know, a number of my Christian conservative uh, friends is they really do feel like they're under attack in terms of the broader secular culture and they feel overwhelmed. And if we're talking about identity politics, who are we to say that what they feel is not real? Right. Because the basic idea of um, of positionality and identity politics is that we have to be differential to, to the lived experiences of people, especially if we're not part of their particular group. So who am I to say that certain white Christian conservatives, um, that their feelings of being under some kind of cultural persecution are not legitimate? If they feel it, it's real. This is where we come to this kind of postmodern difficulty of, of assessing truth and reality because we all feel different kinds of reality and we all like feeling that we're fighting against something. It gives us meaning and all of us want to feel like we're part of some epic struggle. And that's why I think secretly a lot of people actually kind of like living in the Trump era because they feel more alive than ever. Yeah, it's like it lit a fire underneath everybody, and now there's more purpose on both sides. There's this purpose-drivenness to being political and being active, and now everybody is forming a very strong identity based on just a few gut reaction viewpoints and all this. I want to relate this back somehow to Christian nationalism in the same space as your work on Islamic exceptionalism. Because I think with what you just noted there, it's interesting how I know a lot of critics of yours have said that Islam needs to go through some form of reformation. So it parallels the, the sort of journey of Christianity in the West. And you've said how that's not realistic, that it would parallel in the same way. And I want you to get into that a little bit, but I also kind of want to know your thoughts on even though Christianity has gone through that reformation, it's interesting to see in America, like you were born here, like you have Christian conservative friends, like you just said. So you see the sort of um, rhetoric, the broader rhetoric, I'm sure, in Christian nationalism, how there's figureheads like Franklin Graham or Jerry Falwell Jr. or um, what's his name, Pat Robertson. There's a lot of these really huge figureheads that have massive control in the media that really look for control and theocracy. In their minds, you know, a lot of the sort of uh, oppression games that they play, it comes from this whole idea of the New Testament where they want to, quote-unquote, bring heaven to earth, and they feel like it's their job to prepare earth for when Jesus returns, you know, on his chariots or whatever, and they, they need to reclaim these political systems and reclaim educational systems and all that. So I think this is just maybe my hot take on this to kind of get your viewpoint, because I grew up in a very conservative Christian community, so I know that a lot of them 
take this very seriously. And you sort of argue that Islam is unique in the sense of how they want to control different political systems of power. So can you kind of get into a little bit about Islamic exceptionalism in the sense of politics and how that contrasts a little bit to the American system with uh, Christian nationalists? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, I wrote this book called Islamic Exceptionalism. And the argument, uh, you know, as you alluded to, is pretty much right there in the title. So it's easy for people to get worked up about it. You know, the, the short version of the argument is that I do, in fact, believe that Islam is fundamentally different than than most other religions, not just in any way, because obviously all religions are unique compared to other religions. Otherwise, what's the point of religion? But Islam is exceptional in how it relates to law, politics, and governance. So what that means basically is that in theory and in practice, I would say, that Islam has proven to be resistant to secularization. Islam has proved to be resistant to privatization. Islam continues to play an outsized role in public life and politics. And let me just be clear here, and this is where there's always a little bit of confusion. I don't consider this to be inherently bad. And one thing that I'm trying to challenge you know, uh, Western audiences on is to move away from this presumption that any role for religion in public life is automatically or necessarily bad. We can't come to that conclusion without more information about what role a given religion is playing and what the context is. And we can look throughout history and come up with a lot of ways in which religion played a constructive role in state building, in transcending ethnic divides by creating a broader religious community, so on and so forth. And of course, we know the ways in which religion um, can be either used to justify violence or contribute to violence and terrorism and so on. So for me, exceptionalism is basically a value-neutral way of talking about what I consider to be an important difference between major faiths. And I'm someone who's also a very big believer that deep difference in societies is not something to be papered over or to be resolved. So when people talk about, oh, there are really big differences between these different communities, religions, ethnicities, or whatever, that's not something to solve. That's something to accept, and even if we're willing, perhaps even embrace And I don't think that we can go back to some imagined past where we all as Americans or French or Brits or, you know, Egyptians, you name it. We can't go back to a time when there was a genuine moral consensus. We now live in a time where there is going to be, if you will, moral confusion. But that maybe has a pejorative connotation. Perhaps I would say just moral differences. We don't agree on what the conception of the good life should be. And that's fine. And if people want to go and say that, hey, all of us as Americans have to move to this shared national identity and go back to that or find it, that to me is a recipe for disaster because that means imposing one conception of the good life on another. And I think that right now um, we have to accept that that there is going to be a very, let's say, rich diversity 
in how we think about our moral and ideological priors. So then the question becomes, what do we do about this? And just to tie this back to Islamic exceptionalism, Islam, I do. So if you take my premise that Islam is different, then we have two ways of responding to that. We can either look at that as a problem and say that Islam has to go through some kind of reformation. And this is my main my main difference with someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali, that Islam is Islam can only go through a reformation if Islam is similar to Christianity. And there's no reason to think that Islam is similar to Christianity in in a in these particular set of ways that made conduce that made Christianity conducive to reformation. And there's no reason to think that any religion has to follow Christianity as if Christianity is the standard or the model for, for all religions to follow. Why should we even presume that? Why is that even the starting point of discussion? Christianity went through a reformation for reasons that are specific to Christianity. So that's basically where I come out on that. So my alternative would be that if Islam is going to be resistant to privatization for the foreseeable future, then the question then becomes is how do we accommodate Islam's role in public life in a way that is constructive and contributes to a deeper pluralism? That is my fundamental goal, and that's what I think the goal should be when we look at the lack of democracy or the lack of stability in the Middle East. One of the key sources of conflict and instability, as I see it, is the unwillingness to accept Islam's role in public life. And this manifests itself in how we talk about the role of Islamist parties. And here I'm not talking about violent parties or ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever. I'm talking about what I call mainstream Islamist parties, parties and groups that by and large accept the parliamentary process. They accept at least procedural democracy, if not necessarily substantive or liberal democracy. They may not love the nation state, but they accept they have to work within the confines of the nation state. They're gradualists. They renounce violence, most of them, you know, decades ago, whatever it might be, so on and so forth. So it just doesn't make sense if you believe in democracy, small d democracy. It doesn't make sense to then argue that these Islamist parties, say like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or Jordan, or in Nahda in Tunisia, or the PJD in Morocco, that they should be taken out of the political process, or they should be excluded from the political process. If you're making that argument, then you are not, in my view, a small-D Democrat, because you're essentially saying that a party that represents a significant sector of the population has no right to representation. And democracy has to represent ideological persuasions across the board as long as the people who believe in those ideological persuasions do so within the democratic process and they do so while respecting the law and the constitution in whatever country they happen to be in. So that's my fundamental starting point. And that's what I think we should apply to pretty much all societies. And we can even apply that here in the U.S. I don't want to push anyone outside of the American political process as long as they're willing to work within um, the democratic system. And that I think most Americans are instinctually comfortable working within the democratic process. But once we start talking about not respecting democratic outcomes if the people we don't like win – 
that's when I know we're, we're starting to cross a very dangerous red line. And that's why, not to go on a tangent here with you, but the kind of obsession with the Russia, the Russia conspiracy theories and Trump did this and he's maybe treasonous and all this stuff that you're hearing, as I mentioned earlier, from certain people in the mainstream left, that to me is dangerous because it means that we're not willing to accept the legitimacy of democratic outcomes. And the, the Russia conspiracy theories are basically, as I see it, at least in part, a way to delegitimize a democratic outcome that we as Democrats or folks on the left see as fundamentally threatening to our idea of America. But you know what? Other Americans have a different idea of America, and it's not our job to say that our idea of America has to push away the other. And this is why when people say, this is not who we are, you know when people talk about how Trump, yeah, fine, Trump is bad and all this, and they say that this isn't who we are. I find that to be a little bit problematic because, let's be honest, Trump is part of who we are. We are a democracy, and our leaders reflect some version of the democratic will right may not be perfect and i know there's electoral college and all these other mediating institutions but trump is part of who we are yeah there's definitely some weird refusal to acknowledge that piece that integral piece of who we are as americans in trump you know it's kind of a failure to look at ourselves in the mirror a little bit on both sides of the party. And I think you're right. I mean, even to the extent, let's say there is a, and there is piled on evidence, at least it would seem that there was some type of collusion with Russia between Russia and Trump. But when you look at the way the media covers it, it becomes this super just complex, almost like a smoke screen. When you look at like how MSNBC covered it, I mean, they were covering it while so many other major world events and other policy events in America were moving. And it really did become this sort of really weird distraction almost to delegitimize this whole process on both ends of the spectrum. And I, I want to go back a little bit to something you had mentioned toward the beginning of all that, where, you know, there's this sort of tendency in America to, I think on the secular left, at least, there's this tendency for people to look at faith and politics and to look at it from the Christian angle and to say, oh, we got to get the Christian faith out of politics. They're hindering our progression on issues like gay marriage or abortion. And then you look on the right and the people on the right have the same outlook when it comes to those within faiths like Islam. I forget what the polling is, but it's I'm pretty sure having a Muslim president at this point in America is polled even lower than an atheist. Or it's somewhere, they're both neck and neck, super, super low approval rating for something like that. So there's a lot of just skepticism and on both sides of the spectrum to this in, in one way, shape, or form. But to your point, you know, you can't really remove faith from the political spectrum because faith is a reflection of what the actual people of that country or area are believing. So if people have this sort of tendency to be like, well, you know, I don't want someone with name your religious belief in political power, but they have to be because they're representing that group of people in the larger population. And there's definitely this push and pull, too, between more secularists and more religious people, which is sort of the foundation of how we've built 
this binary system, which, and you had mentioned, you know, of course it has its flaws. You know, of course there's areas that need improvement, but just having that democratic process where we are representing the people is so important. And I think people tend to look at these systems through that lens where it's, oh, well, we can't have a Islamic political system because Muslims are bad. And that's just such a narrow, simplistic view. And I think you can, in the same hand, criticize actions and rhetoric of something like the Muslim Brotherhood, while also acknowledging its place in the Muslim world, representing the larger community of Muslims as a whole. Ideally, what I would like to see people do is say, one, we hate the Brotherhood on X, Y, and Z issues, but we will defend to our death their right to participate in the political process. That shouldn't be super hard to do. But honestly, you you won't believe how difficult of a point that is to make. And it's also difficult to make in the context of, say, Trump. When you say, I hate Trump on X, Y, and Z issues, but there is no way I will even start on the road of delegitimizing him as an elected president. Or we can apply this to any number of far-right populist parties, the Italian populists who are now in power. So we have to separate between what we think about a particular group and their ideas and policies, and then what the right to participate in in a broadly democratic system. That's one thing I'd say. When it comes to differences between how people view Islam and Christianity in public life, and I think you bring up a really good point. I can't recall exactly the context, but I remember there was, uh, it might have been Senator Feinstein who was challenging a Supreme Court nominee, and she said something like, the dogma lives loudly in, within you or something. Did that actually happen? I, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, the reason I'm saying, like, did this actually happen is because I'm pretty sure it did, but I can't believe that people are, are putting up these litmus tests you know, for people and saying, like, how religious are you? And your religiosity is a problem and we wish you were secular. I mean, that's right. Right. OK. Yeah. yeah. What, what's going on in some of these back and forths. Um, but one one difference I do think makes um, understanding Islam sometimes a bit more challenging for kind of ordinary Americans is, number one, there's a big gap in observance. Generally speaking, Muslims are more observant than Christians. And, and the polling, you know, across the board makes it, it's, it's a huge observance gap in most European countries. It's a somewhat smaller observance gap in the U.S., but it's still significant. And there's a recent Pew, uh, a pretty comprehensive Pew survey that goes into the details on this if people are interested. But I do think that presents an issue because here in D.C., when I, when I meet a, a quote-unquote Christian, oftentimes they're not actually Christian in a theological sense. They're nominally Christian, or they might say something like, oh, I grew up Christian, but now, you know, I'm not really, or whatever it might be. Yeah. And it's, it's really gotten to the point where if someone tells me that they're Christian explicitly in, in D.C. or New York or a major urban area, it's actually very unusual for me to hear that. Where if you meet a Muslim, they may not be practicing, they may have various levels, but, you know, there is a bigger chance that they are observant in some way. So I, I'm, if I recall from the Pew survey, 
that uh, this is self-reported. So there, there's obviously a self-reporting issue here that could be um, that could affect that, the outcome. But that 80 percent of American Muslims fast during Ramadan. I'm a little bit skeptical that it's that high. But let's say that there's an overreporting of 20 percent. If 60 percent of American Muslims fast, that is a very high level of observance on something that is pretty taxing and not super easy to do. Right. So the so I think one issue is that Christians sometimes assume that most Christians there's there's been decline of religious observance certainly among Democrats but also among young Republicans we're seeing observance levels and weekly church attendance decrease over time but when you look at Islam I think sometimes people will think oh Islam seems more vibrant more resilient it's more unapologetic it's more uncompromising and those things might all be true in some way, and they might be seen pejoratively if you're coming at it from a secular standpoint. But the, the religious um, Muslims that I know take pleasure in the fact that Islam has, has generally been more resilient in the public sphere and when it comes to level of practice. It's almost like that resilience has made the community stronger and more vibrant to that point. Whereas when you look at the cultural Christian community at large, it's been the majority for so long and it's sort of waned through decades of secularism and capitalism to the point where most Christians culturally, at least many of the ones that I know, they might go to church on Sunday. Maybe they go to some youth group or something similarly to that on a weeknight at some point, but most of their lives live day to day. It's almost detached from the culture itself. You know, they're more, they're working, they're going to school, they've got families. They're probably, most Christians that I know personally, and I know a lot of them, are much more vocal about politics and about different hobbies that they might partake in versus how public their faith is. Yeah. So I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought this through all the way, but just to give you an example, I can think of um, one Christian friend and, you know, for a long time we would hang out and I never really knew that he was explicitly or avowedly Christian mm. until one day he mentioned it in a kind of offhand manner. And it sort of makes me think that the markers for Christian religiosity are less obvious in general. That, but when you, when you talk about if a Muslim is observant, there are markers that you can kind of jump on pretty quickly. Do they pray? I mean, five, it could be five times a day, but people might just pray a couple times a day. But that could be a very visual thing because they may have to leave or go somewhere to do their prayer, even, let's say, in the workplace. Right. Or fasting is very visible, uh, very visible because they won't eat lunch in front of you during Ramadan. Or um, Muslims, uh, many Muslims uh, obviously don't drink, and that's a very visual marker. So I think that it's just more obvious if a Muslim is practicing than if a Christian is theologically Christian or even somewhat practicing or observant. So those, those things factor in as well. I mean, maybe one thing that is worth mentioning, too, is how Christians view law and how Muslims view law. Okay, so... Okay, this could be a can of worms, so I'll actually do a very simple version. But, um, well, first of all, the idea that Muslims, by virtue of being Muslims, all want to go around implementing Sharia law, 
which is something you hear on the, the far right, or actually now, unfortunately, even among some people who are currently in our government. First of all, it's conceptually problematic because Sharia isn't just about public law. It's also about private practice. So if, if let's say you're someone who's like, oh, American, Mr. American Muslim, for you to be considered fully American, you have to disavow Sharia. And you might recall that Newt Gingrich said something along those lines yeah. uh, during the campaign in 20, 2016. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because Muslims wouldn't know how to pray or how to fast or really how to do anything in their private practice if it wasn't for Sharia, because Sharia does include questions and uh, of how you practice your faith in, in, in a daily way, right? Yeah. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But I do think there is, there is an understandable difficulty to understand Sharia because there is no equivalent of Islamic law and Christianity. The closest you have is canon law, but canon law is different than Sharia because canon law doesn't really address public law or governance. Yeah. It's more about the, um, the internal organization of the church and the church's domain and so on. And if you're a Protestant, then there, the idea of implementing Christian law doesn't make any sense at all, which is why you don't hear Christian evangelicals going around calling for the institution of Christian law. Now, there are some smaller denominations that may have some version of that. But if we're talking about um, mainstream evangelicals by and large, implementing Christian law just doesn't make sense because the New Testament doesn't really have an account of public law. That's not the point of the New Testament. I mean, we can go into why that might be and all of that, but in, in um, Islamic law does, um, along with private practice, does have something to say about matters of governance and even criminal codes and things that really get into um, perhaps even some, you know, vaguely economic issues, so on and so forth. So um, that's not to say that all Muslims believe in the same interpretations of these various legal aspects. There's a very rich legal tradition in Islamic history. But I think it is difficult for people who don't have their own distinct conception of law to really get their head around what Sharia actually means, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. I kind of want to get into that more a little bit there, where I can speak a little bit more toward the Christian nationalism, if you will. But yeah. before I do that, I want to hear your thoughts regarding Sharia law. It's almost become the buzzword of Islam in circles of the right. What would you say to be some of the valid critiques of Sharia on the broader scope, like give me some of the explanations or reasoning that someone, specifically on the far right, but anyone who's unfamiliar would be afraid, rightfully, perhaps, or what are some of the misconceptions about it? E either or, just kind of get into that a little bit more. Sure. So my first response to the Sharia question would be, what exactly are people referring to when they say Sharia? Because I think one, one, one misconception is that Sharia, because it's a kind of, it, it, because it's law, I think there's a Western conception of law which leads us to think about things that are written down that are identifiable and we can kind of look at statutes and provisions and say, this is what the law says. And that's a very modern kind of nation state conception of how law works. The Islamic legal tradition is not like that. You can't find it in any one place. 
So there's always a difficulty in really speaking clearly about what Sharia says. Sharia isn't a thing. It can't speak with one voice. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, but also that, um, you know, just to give one con- one controversial example, the hudud punishment. So the hudud punishments include things like cutting off the hands of thieves, um, I guess, uh, let's see, I think uh, whipping for alcohol consumption, um, stoning adulterers. Okay, things like that that get a lot of, um, first of all, very few Muslim-majority countries actually really implement any of these um, punishments. But is, are there things like that in the Islamic legal tradition? Yes, you can find them. Um, but um, most Muslims um, aren't going around calling for cutting off the hands of thieves, and there are ways to reinterpret some of these things in light of the modern context. So just to give one example of this, some um, Islamic legal scholars would might say that cutting off the hands of the thieves in the time of the 7th century, that may have been appropriate for that time. It wasn't considered cruel and unusual in that context. And there weren't really um, prisons in a lot of places, and you wanted to have a deterrent effect. And that was the original intent of the law, to provide a kind of deterrent effect uh, or um, to punish effectively. You could, some have made the argument that um, you can basically use that reasoning to justify just basic incarceration or any kind of other punitive measures, fines, whatever it might be, and that that's not something that necessarily holds true the specific punishment for all times and all places. That's sort of a variation of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. I'm just giving one example of some of the internal debates you have among Islamic legal scholars. That's super helpful because, I mean, specifically, it can uh, parallel an example to Jewish tradition and how Christianity interprets the Old Testament, where you had something like eye for an eye in the Old Testament. And it's argued within the tradition that at the time when eye for an eye became culturally implemented, that was actually a progressive idea. Because prior to I for an I, when an enemy would come in and say, like, they'd kill your family or steal your crops or whatever it would be, the resulting measure that you could take against them would be endless. So the resulting measure would be, you know, you'd go to their place now and rape their whole family, murder them, set the whole village on fire. So the idea of I for an I, when it became implemented, some scholars argue is that that was a way to sort of balance the system so that if someone wronged you, you could only do so much back in an equal measure. So I think there's a lot of that type of rhetoric in these ancient texts when we interpret them for modern times that you, you can look at it and say, yeah, of course, this was terrible and, you know, and it went on for hundreds or thousands of years. And nowadays we look at that through this modern lens, but it's a different ball game when you interpret it for 2018 in a lot of contexts. Yeah, exactly. That said, okay, to go to the parts that I think are actually more challenging. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me think about what, so part of the issue, and this actually gets to some of the discussions and debates I've had, was say Sam Harris. And I do think there's a reason that Sam Harris 
has more of an issue with Islam than Christianity. For some of the reasons I mentioned earlier, and this might apply to you know any number of other Americans who are more suspicious of Islam, I mean, there are, first of all, if, if Islam is more resistant to secularization, it means that certain things will manifest themselves in public settings more often. So one example of this is, and, you know, this isn't like a specific legal thing. It depends what the context is, and there are disagreements about what's appropriate and what's not, but um, gender interaction. Mm. So in some, conserv- in some conservative areas, um, Muslim communities have asked for segregated pool times for men and then for women. Now, this is probably less of a big issue in the U.S., although it has been an issue in some in some areas. And there there may be Orthodox Jewish communities that share uh, a similar set of concerns. That has become a pretty big issue in some parts of Europe, in part because no one else besides Muslims is really calling for that stuff. Yeah. So when you, when you have a situation where there aren't other religions that are really making their presence felt publicly— then Islam is naturally going to stand out. Another example of this is um, school lunches. This has become a controversy in France, where basically in Muslim-majority school districts, and there are quite a, quite a few of them in various parts of France, there is a controversy over serving pork. Now, I've gotten in interesting debates with my French friends, and I think there is a divide in how we understand this. So they might say, well, Shadi, couldn't the solution just be that In addition to serving pork, they also serve a vegetarian option. The French don't really have our tradition of lunch boxes, so it really does matter what the school cafeteria serves. But my response to that would be, well, if it's a Muslim-majority school district, why does pork have to be served? Why can't there just be a beef dish and a vegetarian option that everyone can partake in? But then the response, and I get it from a French cultural standpoint, is then you're making an allowance for a particular religious community and you're basically setting a certain kind of precedent. So those are some of the interesting debates that you have in, in Europe. Now, in the U.S., I honestly don't know what people are super freaked out about because, well, first of all, Even if 100% of Muslims were super conservative and incredibly strict and orthodox, they're just around 1% to 1.5% of the population. So, like, are they going to go around, like, implementing Islamic law in parts of the country? And also, our constitution wouldn't allow for certain things, and they would be struck down by any kind of uh, district court or whatever it might be. So I'm, I'm actually never entirely sure what people are actually thinking might happen. And it's ironic that most of the so-called anti-Sharia legislation is being passed in places where there's like one Muslim dude in the entire city. (laughs) So, like, I mean, this is not a real thing. Um, But we also have to take into account that very few American Muslims actually want to implement Sharia. That's something I almost never hear from the Muslims I know. And there's a big difference between Muslim-majority contexts and Muslim-minority contexts. So not to get into a lot of like the Islamic legal aspects of this, but there is a kind of an idea in the Islamic legal tradition that if you're a minority in a place, that you have to respect the law of the land, that it isn't, it isn't your goal to go around um, converting people or implementing certain laws or whatever. 
So that's how the vast majority of American, and that's why I think American Muslims, as we can see, are pretty well integrated, and we don't see major issues around questions of law. Again, it is a little bit more of an issue in Europe simply because Europe has a much stronger secular tradition. So even something that is basically about private practice, like whether a, a woman can wear a headscarf in a school or in a, in a state institution, that's not an issue in the U.S. because we consider that to be in the realm of private practice. And that would be an infringement on religious freedom if we ask someone to take something off off their head because the state doesn't like it. That, however, is, again, a pretty big issue in a number of different European contexts. Yeah, it, it does seem that most of the critiques of Islam within American culture come from outside of America. Because like you said, a lot of the American Muslims, whether they're immigrants or born in America, they assimilate pretty well into American culture. I think a lot when you look at whether it's Fox News or, you know, one of these like bigger right wing platforms, you know, a lot of what they focus on is polling done in like Muslim majority countries, which is, I know is something Sam Harris focuses on a lot, specifically in that talk you had done with him, where the sentiment is pretty pessimistic at best in contrast to a lot of the Western values that we pertain to here. And there's percentages of people, large percentages of them in those countries that feel that like blasphemers and apostates should be either killed or at least ostracized. So it's interesting because a lot of what you're saying is that because a lot of these Middle Eastern countries are vast majority Muslim, there's not other strong religious presences challenging their uh, ideological rhetoric. Whereas when you have a country like America, it's more of a melting pot. So you have a lot of competing ideologies so that perhaps there are, like we, and we already know that there are, there's pockets of American society where there's really fundamentalist Jewish traditions, there's very fundamentalist Christian traditions, and we don't see or hear about them to the same extent because they are constantly brushing up against other secular and different uh, moderate cultures, whereas with the Middle East, it's almost exclusively, in a lot of these Muslim-majority countries, the Muslim population. So is that something that is a huge factor, you think? Like when Pew tries to pull a country like Saudi Arabia or Pakistan or any of these Middle Eastern countries, is that an issue with the population? Like, what? how do you see that? Yeah, so not only do people like Sam Harris bring up these these um, these polls, I do as well. Um, and I think we have to be very frank about some of these. I don't even know what you want to call it, but obviously um, pretty strict, um, hardline even, views on certain issues. And you did mention apostasy. But to give an example of where you have some pretty high numbers in this regard— there are two countries that don't get enough attention, Indonesia and Malaysia. Now, no one is condemning any, any apostates to death in either of those two countries, even though they're generally deeply um, quite conservative when it comes to Muslim sentiment, and the Pew figures make that really clear. I think part of what you're saying applies here. These are pluralistic societies. There are different political parties. You, um, a, a, a political program where you're calling for apostates to be killed isn't likely to do super well. And one thing I think that, you know, has to be clear here is that if you ask someone 
um, what do you think the punishment is in classical Islamic law for apostasy? Do you think that it is punishable by death? That is a different question than do you think your political party should be calling for people to be stoned to death in the public square? Now, what Sam Harris would say is that even if people have the, even if some people have a theological belief, I don't actually know what the numbers are for Indonesia on this specific issue. I don't know even if it goes into detail about what punishments should be for um, apostasy specifically. But let's say 40% of Indonesian Muslims would and would respond yes to a question like that. That's super worrying. That's super problematic. So I do get that when people see some of this polling, they freak out and they think that there's no hope. But when we actually look at how Indonesian democracy, um, the lived experience of it, we see something a little bit different. And so there is, there is a distinction to be made between what could be very problematic and extreme theological beliefs from, from our perspective and what is actually being discussed in the political sphere. And part of that is because politics is generally about compromise unless 100 percent of the people agree on the specific issue. So if you have 40% of people who have a pretty hardline view on apostasy, but then let's say you have 20 to 30% who have a very different view or maybe almost the opposite view on what should be done about apostates, then obviously one, one in a democracy, one group is not going to be able to prevail entirely over the other. And that's what pluralism is about. Right. That, that's certainly part of it. But the, the bigger point, though, is um, on general attitudes towards religion. It is true that most many of these Muslim majority contexts, particularly in the Middle East and South and Southeast Asia, most people are not liberal. And by liberal here, I'm not talking about liberal in the American political sense, but liberal in the just general sense of most Americans and most Europeans subscribe to some variation of the liberal tradition or or they're supposed to at least that i will acknowledge and that's something i've argued myself in my own work that not all people are liberal not all people want to be liberal and part of the difficulty here is that even if we think they should be liberal we can't force people to be liberal against their will that would sort of be the kind of inherent paradox of liberalism if you were forcing people to be free, right? Yeah. So this is where I don't think that, um, you know, folks like Sam Harris might, they bring up these legitimate points about a broader illiberalism in these societies, but then I don't know what their answer is. So my answer is that, again, these countries generally have constitutions. So it's not as if, let's say, an Islamist party comes to power they can just go around doing anything they want to, even if they even if they want to do like the most unusually cruel things. There are still constitutions in these countries that limit what you can do. And um, and this is why I think democracy is the fundamental starting point, because democracy requires some degree of political pluralism. But within that, there could be illiberal parties or even anti-liberal parties that come to power and that's part of a challenge of what democracies have to deal with. And I think we're learning at least a variation of that in our own context. I, I have written that Donald Trump and what he represents 
These are illiberal Democrats. I do not believe that Donald Trump and populist nationalists more generally are committed to the liberal tradition as exemplified by something like the Bill of Rights. They may have to go along with it because it's in our Constitution, but if they could start from scratch, I don't think it would look exactly like the Bill of Rights. We can talk about um, you know, uh, the Italian populists who are currently in power now for the first time um, in, Italian history, in, in um, the history of Italian democracy. Uh, India now has a, has a far-right Hindu nationalist party and what a lot of their candidates run on, at least in part, in various in various places in India, is on beef bans. So basically, anti-Muslim pro- programs that are very much about targeting Indian Muslims as being less equal or as being less loyal, and so on. I mean, we're we're living in an age of illiberalism, and it's not just a question that we have to ask ourselves in the Middle East or Asia, but. It's a question we have to ask ourselves about democracy. Liberalism and democracy, we thought that they went hand in hand, but now they're pulling apart in in interesting, complex, and difficult ways. And then the question for every democracy is, do you try to ban illiberalism or do you try to accommodate illiberalism? I'm very much on the latter. I think the latter is the only way we can live together peacefully. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you just went into there, it seems that a lot of the complications revolving around the different countries with Muslim majorities or large Muslim populations really has to do, the complexities within the sort of belief systems there have more to do with geopolitics than maybe necessarily the core doctrine. What is your take on the geopolitical history of the Middle East specifically? Because, I mean, when you look at, like we've been kind of harping on this whole time, depending on the country, depending on the location and the uh, time of all this, different Muslim groups might assimilate better or worse into a country based on its geopolitical history and based on just their location and time and how serious the uh, faith is taken in one of those countries or if it is a Muslim-majority country. So when you look at the Middle East as a whole over the course of the past, let's say, a few decades, so we don't have to go all the way, you know, centuries back, but are there any key geopolitical moments that you think that critics are sort of brushing over or not really acknowledging when it comes to Islam assimilating into Western values or into the, the, the way we perceive it ought to be? Well, one thing people have to keep in mind is that when, when secular ideas are being introduced for the first time in various Muslim-majority contexts, those ideas are very much intertwined with imperialism and colonialism. Now, I don't want to say that's the reason for not being on board with these ideas, but that is, we have to look at how these ideas were introduced and how it kind of feeds into ideas around authenticity and even nationalism of people trying to come up with their own ideas that feel indigenous to them. So that history has to be taken into account. The other thing that I would say is People's motivations are complex. I mean, one thing that I've really come to appreciate, well, first of all, by, from being alive, but, but more specifically through my fieldwork in the Middle East and spending time with people who are relig- religiously motivated political actors, is that 
people, when you're trying to, so let's take this question of like, why does a Muslim Brotherhood member do what they do in X, Y, Z kind of political action? They might be, they might have a strong religious motivation, but there are also other motivations that factor in. There could be economic grievances. There could be questions around a more national identity, a kind of mix that leads to religious nationalism. I'm someone who very much believes that religion is one of the prime movers, and and we shouldn't um, we shouldn't diminish the role of religion when we're trying to understand why people in various countries in the Middle East do what they do. But at the same time. I have act, I have met people who would basically call themselves liberals in Egypt. Uh, I'm actually thinking about one conversation I had with someone. He sees himself as a liberal. Mm-hmm. I remember I asked him something about just for just I guess sort of for fun, but um, about Islamic law. I think it might have been what he thinks about cutting off the hands of thieves. I asked him, like, "What do you think about this theologically?" and you know, he kind of hemmed and hawed. He was like, yeah, I think that is pretty much what, um, you know, Islam says. There might be some minimal conditions to get to that point, And you wouldn't apply it to someone who was stealing just because they were poor. He was thinking, again, it goes to this theological political distinction. He sees himself as a liberal. But when you ask him what he thinks about Islamic law on X, Y, and Z issue, he might give you a very conservative answer, which is only to say that people people say things that are confusing. I mean, one of the um, another example of this. One of the first times I was ever exposed to drugs. Don't worry, this will make sense in a second. <laughs> I'm not worried. <laughs> okay, so this was this was oh, this was a long time ago. I think I was probably in uh, maybe middle school, high school, something like that. Anyway, I was in Cairo. I was in a cab in Cairo, and I can't remember. This guy was like a friend of a friend, and he was a little bit older, and we were in the back of the cab um, in, in Cairo, and he starts like lighting up um, a joint, I guess. Well, it's, it's basically a joint. It's hashish. It's called hashish in Egypt, but it's basically the same thing as pot, more or less. Then, for whatever reason, and I wish I had taken notes like 20 years ago, like uh, 15 years ago or whatever, but basically while he's, while he's smoking this joint and I'm, a, I'm kind of caught off guard, I, we get into this discussion about Islamic law because that's when I was starting to get more interested in these questions. And that's also something that's like a normal thing to talk about in Egypt. Well, oh, wait, you're smoking a joint. How, do, how does this kind right. of go? your religious views. Wait, are you sure? Is this okay to do in the back of a cab? What do you think? Blah, 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 whatever. And I remember he made the case to me that he believes in the establishment of an Islamic state. And not not like Islamic state like ISIS, but an Islam, just a kind of Islamic state that implements Islamic law that is somewhat conservative and somewhat strict. And I asked him, well, wait, I'm confused. You're you're doing something which would be banned under your hypothetical Islamic state. And he told me, exactly, I want to live under a state that stops me from smoking hashish. Anyway, again, he's not, he's not religious. He's not practicing. You know, this is, again, the basic point here is that people are weird. Yeah. And they don't do things for one very clear reason. Yeah, I think I look at that oftentimes within the Christian community that I was raised in. Just the, it seems like mental gymnastics. And I think 
there's a sort of tendency for people, especially in that this space that we've kind of been talking on and off about, like whether it's the people like Sam Harris or Amjad um, Nawaz or um, Douglas Murray or Dave Rubin or Jordan Peterson, the, the people who follow characters like this have a heart for truth, I think, and logic and facts, at least in their own perception. Like that's what they think they're after. And I think for a lot of people who are trying to put reason to the human experience, oftentimes you can't do it. And I think it doesn't really matter how much you love reason, you're going to find contradictions in yourself. There's going to be points of yourself that are always at odds, that don't really make sense. You know, I can't even tell you how many Christian friends of mine who if you sat down with them and we were just talking about day-to-day life, they'd be all about loving your enemies and, you know, forgiveness and all this, but then at the same time, they are pro-policies of bombing in the Middle East. So it's a weird thing. You know, I think people are constantly looking to call out someone, like the aha moment of, I got you, like, I got you, you think this, but you also think this, and that doesn't make sense. But I think oftentimes we have to really look at the broader picture and just how complicated people are and how susceptible we are to just being impressionable. I mean, people change their views. People are open to new information, I think, more than we give them credit for in a lot of these areas. And I think one of the things you brought up toward the beginning of all that that I just want to highlight was I think... The idea behind Western colonialism and military intervention, in my mind at least, is the strongest uh, leftist critique, I'd say, of right-leaning rhetoric when it comes to all this. It's the thing, in my mind at least, where the people on the right, or at least center-right, ignore it the most when it comes to talking about these issues is that it sort of just gets brushed under the rug like it's a non-issue like let's just focus on the doctrine let's just focus on what muslims are actually saying and doing in these countries and i think that entirely fails to see the broader geopolitical picture there when it comes to history of colonialism and military intervention because these things Again, similarly to kind of what we've been getting at in this whole conversation, you can hold these two things in the same hand. And I think people tend to look at it through just one lens. We essentially created terrorists based on colonialism, and that's that. Like, that's the end of the conversation. Or people say, no, Islam, the doctrine, creates terrorists, and that's that. That's the end of the conversation. And I think when it comes to a lot of these bigger... Uh, nuanced issues, we have to look at it through more than one lens. Like, we have to be able to see the bigger picture and balance our critiques with our affirmation, you know, and see see the problem of the ideology where it stands, but then also see the people within the context of that ideology and love them and try to understand them and really not give in, I think, to just the fact that we are on the other end of the world and we get to see these things through our television screens and some abstract online culture where we don't really understand fully what it's like and why the reasoning why a lot of the people in these scenarios become who they are or what they believe. So I'm glad you brought that up. But this is a really good point because even if you thought that Islam should be changed, That's not very easy to do in policy terms if we're thinking about it as the American government. And there are easier things that we could do. Our policies in the Middle East suck, and they have for, to put it bluntly, for quite a long time. And that's where we actually have the ability to make changes 
that are tangible and would you know affect people's lives for the better. I mean, not doing the Iraq War would have been really helpful um, for the broader region, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so thing, you know, think, things like that, which I, I think you're right to point out that when you really focus on this religious trying to understand, I, I care a lot about understanding religious motivations from, from an academic standpoint because I find it fascinating. But when we actually come to policy interventions that are doable, realistic, and constructive, then it becomes more difficult to change people's doctrinal commitments. And this is really, I think, a blind spot. And the fact that we don't even really have this conversation all that much, that, hey, we have a pretty tragic history of doing really bad things in the Middle East. I wonder if that has affected the level of instability and bad governance in a lot of these countries. Now, part of the problem here is I don't think either party really has a vision for how to improve right. our policies in the Middle There's East. No solution. Yeah, and I, I kind of find myself in a weird place um, in that I'm very, very not not to open up a completely different line here, but I'm very excited and enthusiastic about someone like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I think that she's she's exactly what. I think folks on the left need and what we need as a country, at least as one one significant part of the broader political debate. And we need people who can articulate those views. She's inspiring. She's charismatic. Do I agree with her on all of her policies? No, but I think we but I think that she comes from a place of conviction yeah. and, and compassion for the weaker members of her society. That said, I probably uh, part ways considerably with her on foreign policy. And this is the problem I have with, um, let's say, Bernie, that I, I they might be good in some ways for the Democratic Party. But foreign policy is is a place where I think a lot of us who find our, we, we think that the, Ameri- the use of American force should be limited in the sense that we shouldn't do something like the Iraq war again. But I did support the Libya intervention, and I still, and for reasons that we don't have to go into right now, I do believe that we should have intervened militarily against the Assad regime in 2012. And I think Obama not doing that will stand as one of the moral stains when we look back. So, you know, but what I've also realized is people don't easily fall into a certain kind of political category. Some of us might agree with like one so-called faction of the Democratic Party on domestic policy, but be closer to the other faction on foreign policy? Or am I like McCain on foreign policy on certain issues a little bit more? I'm not, I'm not, I'm a complicated person. I don't have like one thing that you can just put me into, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they look at the DSA or groups on the far left, there is that sort of purist mentality where they, the further left you go, they really do band together, you know, whether it's like anarcho-communist communities or the DSA. They really, it's kind of all or nothing when it comes to the rhetoric. There's not a lot of room in those circles, at least when it comes to espousing public, like the public stuff you see, at least from what I gather on social media, that's how I see it. But you definitely, you're right. I mean, there's people, like, I feel the same way. I think I could find people in my life to talk about issues like this, whereas with someone like her, there there's people who would agree on a lot of her progressive policy issues, but would also disagree 
on foreign intervention as a whole. Like that's just, it's really, really difficult more now so than ever to have any type of political nuance in your viewpoints because every team seems to be looking for that purest mentality. And it's really, it's tough, but, but I'm with you on that. Like what, what do you think in all of this, how do you think we can better improve the education system or just improve broader education on topics like Islam in Western culture today right now? You know, we have systems in, in place like this podcast. We have podcasts, there's YouTube channels, there's uh, social media platforms like Reddit and Twitter where people are, you know, starting to gather with new ideas outside of the mainstream perspectives but like it's still even within those hubs it's it seems to be like, it all comes back down to partisan bias and partisan narratives you know in a lot of these cases so when in your perspective like what are some potential solutions to better in the education on all this some of it is is the kind of i guess the the easy obvious answer is that those of us who have something to say that's hopefully constructive, we should try to share that with as many people as possible. That's, that's really you know, part of why I do what I do. Not per se just, just on the, the kind of the religion, the religion part of it, but on Middle East politics more generally. And the, the, the fundamental question for me in any political society is how do we live together with deep difference? So that's something I, want, I plan to talk about for a very long time. And I And my ideas, I think, are not super in the mainstream. And my my hope is that one day more people (laughs) will 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 take them on and and listen to them at least. Um, Part of it too is, um, you know, this is a little bit. I don't think this is always true, and I don't like this idea that oh, if someone just hugs a Muslim or finds a Muslim, then their views can change. I think what actually happens is that someone who is basically anti-Muslim has like maybe one Muslim friend who's like really cool and they're like, oh, he's, he's like awesome and we hang out and whatever. Yeah. But he's not, but he's different. He's different than the rest. So I think you get, there's also this risk of thinking that just because we encourage human contact that everyone's going to be lovey-dovey, I don't actually buy that approach. I actually think that I actually don't have a huge problem if people hate each other as long as they hate each other while respecting the law. My issue is when hate crosses the line into um, things that would be considered illegal or violent. So I'm, I'm somewhat of a minimalist in that regard. I don't have a lot of faith that we're going to find some common ground because I think the reasons that we dislike each other or even in some cases hate each other are because we have fundamentally different conceptions of the good life. And I don't think that's something that you can change very, uh, very easily. What you can change is to say, are you willing to live with people who have fundamentally different conceptions of the good life than you do and talk to them respectfully without trying to, like, put them in jail or something or kill them? Uh, And again, that's lowering the bar considerably. But I don't really know what the alternative to that is on 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 uh, Islam. You know, so I guess that would be. Kind of my not super maybe that's an optimistic answer because I do think people can live together peacefully with a deep difference, but it might also be perceived as rather um, dark and pessimistic because I just don't have the same kind of faith in human progress that I think a lot of my 
colleagues on the left do this pro- kind of progressive Whig history mm. that the arc of history is always bending towards some greater conception of justice. I also find that to be a potentially dangerous way of looking at how history moves because if you think history only has one particular direction or one particular endpoint, it means that anyone who doesn't believe in that same direction is in effect an enemy of history. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point to make. I mean, I think, too, when it comes to living peacefully amongst each other, there's that in and of itself brings up broader issues within progressive communities and how, you know, a lot of the progressive narrative insofar as how we get sort of past the uh, issues that we're facing today is the issues of systematic oppression, which the further left you go, the solutions become, well, we have to tear the whole thing down. And then the further right you go, it's like, okay, now we have to completely preserve the systems in place and not budge an inch. And it does seem like now more than ever in the era of Trump that these two polar opposite sides are pushing against each other so hard. And there's very few people giving ground, at least it seems right now. You know, you do have a lot more voices coming out within the sort of, again, I know we talked about how we don't like this term, but the moderate sort of side between the two extremes, like there are more voices becoming popular at this point, but it is really, it's really tough to think about like what are the tangible solutions because I'm, I'm with you in the sense where I feel that we have to continue communicating good ideas and we have to continue to try to really understand the other in our lives. And the only way to do that is to constantly be challenging this notion of how far can I take my freedom to the point where it doesn't infringe on someone else's freedom. And how we define that is all so different. Like the way a Christian is going to define that in reference to interacting with a Muslim or an atheist, the sort of three-way interaction there is going to be perceived completely differently because each of us have different um, inerrant freedoms that we value in our culture. So it's definitely, we have to stay in that place of tension, I think, in order to keep wrestling with these ideas to live with each other in a way where we're not just completely shutting the other, the other out of our lives. And even that line that you're mentioning, that, that line is not always easy to discern. It might seem obvious in the moment. And this actually gets to something which I liked a lot from Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, where he has this conception of fractured time that today many, I would say, more, more progressive type liberals, the way they view time is a little bit different in the sense that So we would look back 15 years or when Obama was first running for office, and if someone believed what Obama believed then about gay marriage, if you recall, Obama was not for gay marriage. He only supported civil unions and so on. That was an acceptable position on the left then, even if it might have been problematic in some circles. Today, that would be considered the like as that's bigoted or that's like the worst idea possible or someone has to be cast out of polite company if they don't believe in gay marriage but how do we how do we how do we judge time then and it's it's also the same issue we get to when we talk about great philosophers what are we supposed to think about John Locke and his kind of anti-catholic bias or whatever it might be or the founding fathers i mean 
And there are obviously very problematic views on any number of issues. So that is, I don't know, I've just been thinking about that more. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the line is different depending on what time we happen to be in. And what might seem obvious to us today wasn't obvious 15 years ago. And what might become obvious 20 years from now may not be obvious today, which is just to say that history is a little bit more fluid and it's not unidirectional. And I, I can say that people on both sides of the, the Roe v. Wade debate or just, you know, abortion issues generally, both of them think that they're on the right side of history. What do you do with that if both sides think that they're on the right side of history? Which is only to say that I think that the way, the most productive way of operating in a democracy is to have our own view and to hold it deeply, but then to acknowledge that there could be people who think the right side of history is the opposite side. Granted, this doesn't apply to things which are basically closed. As I was saying earlier, we've closed the debate on slavery. We're not going to have a debate about whether slavery can be justified. But things that are not closed, that are unsettled, like pro, pro-life versus pro-choice, we have to be willing to acknowledge that there is an other side that is operating in good faith. They are not trying to destroy the world. Right. Yeah, I'm totally with you, man. That's such an important note to close on with all this. We just really have to be conscious of how the other is operating. And we, we all, no matter where we come from with our tribal identities, we all have a tendency to straw man our opposition in some way and to look at them in a generalized caricature, you know, when it comes to a lot of these policy issues and cultural differences. And it really is now, now more than ever, I think, just so important to step outside of our own biases and really try to understand where they're coming from. And obviously, with the with the knowing that we are not going to agree and there's not going to be some peaceful frolicking through the forest together like everything's perfect and we all get along great but it's it's the the other option is chaos so it's like we have the option of democracy and working through these sort of differences together or we have revolution and chaos and continual polarization so i think a lot of what you've been talking about is so key in how we navigate the space that we're in. So I'll include all your social media info and all that in the show notes, but is there anything you wanted to end on there or anything that you got coming up that you want to touch on before we go? Uh, No, no, I think that uh, that pretty much covers it. I'll just say, you know, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate the time. You've been super generous with it. This was a really fun talk. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah, I hope we can do it again sometime for sure. And let's definitely stay in touch. Yeah, for sure, Shadi. All right. Appreciate it, man. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.